Hello, friends. Welcome back. Our guest this week is Brother Richard Hendrick, uh, who is a Dublin-based priest friar of the Irish Capuchins Franciscan province. So these are the religious people you see, the religious men that wear the all-brown gown with like the white belt. He's one of them. He was the director of the youth ministry for the Irish Capuchins for over 10 years and has worked at both secondary and third level as a retreat giver and a chaplain. He is deeply knowledgeable around ritual and initiation within several wisdom traditions and his work highlights the significance that they play in our development of hu as humans. With the Sanctuary Mindfulness and Spirituality Center based in Dublin, he has created many youth and teacher training programs around this perspective. The perspective being that young people need elders along with ritual and healthy forms of initiation to help them progress through the stages of human development. In this conversation, we unpack this further with Brother Richard, along with the essential components of healthy initiation, the precise role of eldership, and why our parents cannot be our elders. We also hear his critique around the confirmation, the common form of initiation for young people associated with the Catholic Church. This was a special chat with a man deeply committed to spreading the insights from many wisdom traditions, not just a Christian tradition. If you would like some more from Brother Richard, he has a fantastic book out called Still Points, a guide to living the mindful meditative way, which is available in all good bookshops. Thanks to Brother Richard for his time and thanks to you for listening. All the best guys. Hello friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today our guest is Dr. Brother Richard Hendrick. Welcome to the podcast, Brother Richard. How are you keeping? It's good to be with you. Thanks for, for having me. No, yeah, thanks for thanks for agreeing to come on. Um I guess we usually ask guests before we get going into the topic to maybe give a brief kind of description of yourself and kind of how you've come to be where you are right now. Uh, I know it's a big question to start with, but <laughs> okay, condense condense the life. Um, so I'm I'm uh, a Capuchin Franciscan friar, um, which is basically for those people who are trying to picture it, um, your your kind of classical um, Hollywood picture of of monk, as in brown robe and and uh, rope belt, etc. Um, we belong to uh, the Catholic lineage um, and were founded by St. Francis of Assisi in 1209 as a renewal of monastic life that was about balancing the practice of meditation and contemplation with active service of, of the poor or of anybody who is in need. Um, St. Francis is mostly known uh, by, by people as the kind of the animal saint um, because he was renowned for his um, closeness to nature and for his belief that it was when we would live in brotherhood or sisterhood with with um, all other beings that we would then arrive at a, a place of contemplative knowing of God in, in a very deep way, as well as his uh, desire to live the gospel of Christ as fully as possible. Uh, and so the order proceeded along. Um, from 1209 on up until around about the mid-1500s when it was so big at that stage there were a group of the 
the friars, and the word friar just means brother, the group of the brothers uh, who decided they wanted to get back to the original simplicity and particularly the centeredness on the practice of meditation that Francis had intended. Um, And they split off and became known as the Capuchin Franciscans. And the word Capuchin comes from Scappuccini in Italian, which just means big hoods. Um, We have a large hood on the robe that that, that is used when we're out and about um, to protect against the weather, but also as a kind of a portable cell for meditation uh, when when needed. And it was one of our brothers um, who is responsible for the creation of the cappuccino. So anybody who's had a cappuccino, that's where that's where it comes from. Um, um, nothing too contemplative about that, but it, it helps. It helps life along the way. So I have been a Capuchin friar. Um, I joined in uh, 1991 um, and I've uh, had various ministries, various work along the way. Obviously, our training is quite quite an in-depth training. We, we trained for 11 years before we're, we're finished. Um, and then after that, I have worked um, mostly uh, with, with younger people, um, worked in schools, worked in universities, worked in prisons, uh, hospitals, etc. Um, and all of that led me particularly to the teaching of meditation and contemplation uh, to, to people outside and particularly to young people. And that's when I connected with the Sanctuary Centre, which is a centre in Dublin that was set up by Sister Stone Kennedy, a very famous um, social innovator and religious sister who has worked for the poor and for immigrants and for refugees for, for countless years, really. And she has set up this little centre as a kind of spiritual oasis in the middle of the city of Dublin. Um, it comes from the Christian tradition, obviously, but it is open to the wisdom of all traditions. Um, everyone is welcome to be there. Uh, and um, the work that I got involved in there really from the outset was working with um, a number of different people on the sanctuary team to create programs for young people um, and then laterally for their teachers or for youth facilitators. Um, and that's where I encountered you, James, uh, working with the the Warrior Program, which is a program around um, particularly for young people who are at risk, but also, um, I suppose, inviting people and, and adults where the facilitators are concerned into looking at initiation in their own life and particularly the call to eldership within society um, that is often neglected nowadays. So it draws wisdom from the Christian tradition, but from all the wisdom traditions to, to build that program together. Thank you, Brother Richard. That was one of the most succinct <laughs> intros we've ever written. No we've problem. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I came across you uh, about two months ago with this program. Um, and the work, the research behind the program, I guess, is what really um, encouraged me to reach out to you and, and ask could we have you on the podcast? Because like you said, it it, it doesn't just... Uh, work from the christian tradition it acknowledges that pretty much any uh, tradition that has maintained consistency or maintained uh, validity for hundreds of years or thousands of years they have all followed some sort of similar pattern some sort of uh, essentials um, and i guess what hmm. i think is so important so, about- sorry you go ahead yeah no i i suppose um the the essential aspect is 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 the human you know the basic human that's that's what we're dealing with and and every human being in some sense is seeking meaning 
every human being wants to find um, a point of awareness in their existence that allows them to recognize that there is um, there's there's a there's a reason for them for them being there. There's something that we have to contribute. Um, there's a gift that has to be uncovered, a path to be walked. We have all of these images that we that we use for it. The 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 religions and the wisdom traditions of the world, um, you know, obviously, uh, they they come out of that that same human desire, that human longing uh, for for meaning. Today in the Christian calendar, actually, we celebrate the feast of Saint Augustine, who was one of the great seekers, one of the great um, philosophers of the of the the early the early centuries of Christianity. Um, and Augustine is most famous for this wonderful quote that he that he has uh, referring to God, where he says, "You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you." And that restlessness, um, while we seek for meaning, is at the core of what it is to be a human being. Now, obviously, Augustine and myself latterly um, find that meaning within the Christian tradition. Others find it in other ways. But we would say, actually, as Christians, from a theological point of view, that once you are searching for truth, meaning, beauty, all of these transcendent values that all cultures have kind of honored and respected, then in some sense, you are searching for the divine and you are encountering the divine. Um, because ever before we get into denominational differences or, or dogmatics or teaching or whatever, if we're speaking of a, a universal creator or a transcendent ground of being, then everything that emerges from that is necessarily going to have the imprint of its creator and is going to find its greatest meaning and its greatest resonance when it is in resonance with the divine. So whatever humanity has named as the good, you know, the good, love, beauty, truth, goodness, wisdom, all of those things, it's only when we're actually actively seeking those or living from them that humanity really attains to, to the highest level it, it can. Um, and I think you can say that just as easily as a Christian as you can as a secular humanist or as a Buddhist or as a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever the particular tradition is you might, you might be part of. We might have differences in terms of how we express it or how we describe it, and we certainly have differences in terms of our, our kind of goals around it. But the fundamental seeking, I think, is, is natural to any human being. So if we go back to that fundamental seeking, um, it is really important for the human being to have, um, to be taught, I, I think, to be taught how to ask the deeper questions um, and, and how to create space in their life for the deeper questions to manifest. Because unfortunately, as we know, particularly in the Western world at the moment, life is lived at such a pace and at such a, a level of experience um, that very often there isn't a whole lot of room for either integrating the experiences or drawing wisdom from them once they're, once they're integrated. And so what we found in the sanctuary, particularly working with young people, was that we had all of these wonderful, wonderful young people, all of them absolutely good in and of themselves, but they either had um, a kind of a discombobulated experience of self. They, were, they felt that they, they kind of floated, cut off from everything else, you know, um, which isn't adolescent individuation. It's a, that's a completely different thing. This, this is a feeling of, of um, separation and, and of um, a feeling very often hopeless and full of anxiety and full of stress about, about the future. 
And secondly, um, they were people who the system, if you want to call social life itself the system, had kind of pushed out towards the edges because they just didn't know how to cope with them. Um, and when we live in a society that basically wants to make of human beings a kind of a worker ant um, who, who is uh, busy and, and rejoicing in busyness and finds um, you know, the goal of their life in being ever busier, uh, the problem is that we begin to miss the things that actually make us human. So we react to those things. And an awful lot of the, 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 the edge behavior that those adolescents were engaging in was actually reaction to lack of meaning, we felt. And so when we, when we invited them into experiences of things like stillness or reflection or art or being in the body, you know, we, we used to do, do kind of soft martial arts work with them. Um, things like Tai Chi, etc., that slowed them down, being aware of the body, being aware of, of themselves. What we found was almost immediately the why path opened in them, you know, to ask about the bigger and deeper things. And that is the beginning of the path of initiation for everybody, you know. Um, so we tried to structure myself and 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 uh, Neve, who were the founders. Neve Bruce were the found, we were the founders of the the Warrior Course. We we tried to sort of say, okay, what's the basic technology of meaning that all of the traditions would agree on? What are the basic steps that have to be there for an adolescent to actually experience themselves in a meaningful way? that would give them the necessary strength or skills to go through adolescent life and arrive, hopefully, at a moment of integration. We combined that with the mission of the sanctuary. And the mission of the sanctuary center for everybody was to grant everybody one moment of perfect reflective stillness, that everybody should be able to at least have the technology in their own life to access stillness. Um, and when those two things came together, something really magical happened. Something really wonderful happened. We saw those young people change in front of us year after year. Um, and this was being reflected back by the schools, by their parents, by, by the various groups that, that, were, that were working with them. And so then we had the adults coming. And one of our, one of our um, non-negotiables was that the adults who accompanied them had to go through this program themselves as well. If nothing else, other than to show the young people they could trust us, but what we discovered was the adults were benefiting hugely from these experiences. And many of them were reflecting back that this is something that's been missing for me. You know, I've become an adult, but I've never actually been initiated into adulthood. Um, and if you look at the whole of Western society at the moment, we are aberrant after, you know, millennia of human experience in that we exalt the non-individuated adolescent as being the goal of society. You know, this is what you are to become. If you can stay at between 18 and 25 for the rest of your life, that's the goal. To try and keep your behavior and your, your way of being in that sort of lifestyle. Um, and this simply was never the way. If we look at all classical civilization, all indigenous civilization, adolescence is something necessary that you pass through on the way to being a productive adult. But the goal was to become a person of wisdom, to become an elder, to become someone who had integrated their life in such a way that they were now um, a doorway to the transcendent. Uh, they were someone who actually was a person of wisdom. Um, and once, once we, we kick the elders away 
um, pressure the adults into lives of drudgery and worker antness. Um, the adolescent is not in any situation, any way granted a situation of, of initiation to be able to move beyond adolescent ways of doing things. Mm. Um, and so the more we, we, we worked with this, the more we discovered the hunger for meaning in the heart of every human being is, is, is there. But the technology to arrive at the point of meaning was not there. And so what we're trying to do is to allow a kind of a, a learning from all of the wisdom traditions whereby people can then create a scaffolding of learning that will allow them to move through these initiatory experiences, uh, which don't happen just once in our life. They happen over and over again. But th this gives us the ability then to... to um, evaluate our experiences from a wisdom perspective rather than from a reactive perspective. Uh, and that's probably too long an answer, but there, there we go. <laughs> that, that was great, Richard. Thank you. Uh, just before we get going, um, like fully into the conversation, I just want to set up kind of some foundations. You use the word initiation there a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and to some people, they might completely understand exactly what you're talking about, but to others, it might kind of sound like a, a weird abstract uh, thing that you're talking about or not, not really understand what it is. So could you kind of give us what your definition of, is of initiation and kind of what maybe some examples maybe that we could. Sure, sure, sure. Well, so an initia initiation coming from, from the Latin originally, initium, which means beginning, you know, it's, it's, it's about inviting somebody into beginning another stage in life. So we can speak of things like rites of initiation that anthropologists and sociologists and theologians would speak of. And these are the sort of classical ceremonies by which someone transitions from one stage of life to another. So they are very clear, having gone through those ceremonies or rituals or practices, I was that, I am now this, you know. Um, and with that goes very often the experience of moving into a different level of knowledge, of responsibility, and also of, of inner knowing. Um, so when we speak of, of inviting people into initiation in their own lives, that's what we're talking about, a transformational transition that is guided by a community and that has a transcendent element to it. Perfect. Thank you for that. That was great. And, and then the other thing I wanted to... Um, to question you on was you were talking there kind of about how when you had the younger well adolescents and then like the younger adults as well you know people my age I'm 27 um that the, there's like this worker ant mentality that we've kind of all been mm -hmm. forced into through the school system and, and so on uh and you know I was talking to Jim in preparation to this and I was saying how I, at least the way that I kind of see see it, and I'm happy to to be challenged on this for sure but it's just that like I find that at least in my own life I can only obviously talk about my own perspective is that I have I would consider that I have purpose and meaning and a defined path in my what I would consider my personal life mm. be that with my personal relations that I have um, and all the rest of it however where I'm currently struggling uh, and feel a sense of just like I'm just kind of in the ocean with no rudder um, and just floating by is definitely more in the professional sure. um, side of my yeah. life right and I'm, I'm sure you've come across that a million times with me I'm not, not the first person oh, yeah. to tell you that yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I was wondering how because when you kind of talk about the search for meaning the search for purpose the search of direction you talk about about it at least the way I'm hearing it anyway is uh kind of in a universal sense not 
not are, are in your professional, your personal life. It's just this is you know your universal meaning, universal yeah. direction. How so? When someone comes to you with what I've just said, and it may be on the flip side. You know, I have friends who I at least the way I think that they would probably say the opposite to me, whereby they've got very clear direction and, and purpose and meaning in their careers. They're very yeah. happy in that. And that's everything they've always planned and it's working out trumps. It's great. But then on the flip side, they don't see any of their family. They never socialize. They don't really have close relations. The relations mm. they do have are kind of dying on the, on the wayside. And so there's a flip, right? And I was just wondering how you kind of um, traverse those two things. Okay. Yeah, no, it's really good. So let's start with your, your case first, okay? The, 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 yeah, the, the person who is, you know, internally um, happy with their, their kind of um, integration of meaning but their their professional life or their workaday life is something that's, as you said, kind of floating in the ocean a bit. So one of the one of the most important elements of the kind of classical rites of initiation is because it starts the goal of that of that of those rites is to give that young person a cosmology of meaning, okay, and an encounter with the transcendent dimension that allows them to then understand that this transcendent dimension underlies everything, every other aspect of life. It is holding the cup in existence, it's holding the tea in existence, and it's holding the hand in existence that holds the cup, the tea, etc. Okay? Now, whether you personalize that or not, that's a different thing. That's a question for religion. But in terms of, of um, the anthropological understanding of it, when they come into that encounter with the transcendent, one of the effects of that is that suddenly we begin to realize that there isn't actually a separation between the professional me who's going into my job, whatever that might be, and the internal me who is seeking wisdom, seeking uh, integration, seeking union through relationships or through self or through, or through um, you know, through um, encounter. One of, the, one of the biggest difficulties in the Western mind since, and this goes back to this, Cartesian moment of separating, uh, separating body and mind, is that that we have this dichotomous understanding of the internal is one thing and the external is another. How I am in the world is different from my being in the world. Okay, whereas if we look at the great wisdom traditions, they they say that's absolutely a false dichotomy. Um, that in actual fact, if you are experiencing depths and wisdom and integration and all the rest of it in your internal side. The only thing that's missing to bring that to the work side is to begin to recognize that if I encounter the work end of things with deeper presence, I begin to recognize then at that moment that the quality of my presence actually affects the quality of my experience of the other side. So I can be as randomly, you know, I can be doing the most practical thing in the world. I'm a, I'm a waiter in a, in a cafe. I'm building a wall. I'm, I'm doing whatever it is. The transcendent, the encounter with the transcendent gives to that transcendent meaning also. Because at the very least, what I'm doing in that, in those instances is, in my own small way, contributing to society. By being the waiter as well as I can be, by building the wall as well as I can do it, by honing skill, by honing attention, by honing presence, um, I can actually begin to encounter the universal and the transcendent there in those moments as well. Now, that's not saying that we don't then aspire to grow beyond those things or to do other things or to, you know, to find the, 
the work that gives us spark and joy and all of those things. But it is saying that there is nothing that cannot be hallowed with our attention. Because very often what we find with, with the balance, as you've given it, Seb, is that we have a person who um, lives in oasis moments of deep experience and then moves day to day into the drudgery of the day to day. You know, here I go into the drudgery again. If only I could get out to be, if only I could get out to do, if only I could, whatever. Now, it's not taking those aspirations away, but what it's saying is actually there is a tremendous value in the drudgery because the drudgery now opens up as a door to the transcendent, as a door to things like discipline, as a door to things like um, compassion, because I might be doing it for other people or so that I'm sharing a life with people or we're building a life together or whatever it might be, or I'm simply going to be kind and compassionate in this place. I will be a presence of kindness and compassionate, uh, compassionate nature and loving kindness wherever, wherever I am. So this begins to illuminate and hallow that, that experience, you know. The, the second element is, um, the second way of looking at it is the person who is in total love with the, with the career that they're in and everything is going well with the day to day, but they're feeling a hollowness inside. And the, the answer is the same. If when we come back to the transcendent encounter, that actually then allows us to have the measuring stick by which we can measure to say, okay, I might be fulfilling all of my hopes and dreams uh, in, for, for a career, but if I'm not feeding that hollow inside me, that void inside me in some way, is it worth living a life of good career, good, good, you know, good professional activity and, and not doing anything with that interior me who is, who is calling out? I, I worked for quite a number of years as a university chaplain. And it used to fascinate me that like the day after graduation, we would have visitors to the chaplaincy um, who had never come at any other time during, during the college years. But they would pop in in a total panic saying, you know, I, I've just realized I don't want to be an architect or I don't want to be a, an accountant or I don't want to. Having spent five or six years or 10 years, whatever I was training. And I, you know, you would inevitably say to them, was there any point along the way where you felt this wasn't what you wanted? And some of them would say, you know, no, but quite a lot of them would say, well, I wanted what the job would give me. So they were looking for the professional security, the high earning, the status, the, the you know, whatever it might be. Or for some of them, it was simply following in dad or mum's footsteps or whatever it might be. There was some kind of framework of meaning there, definitely. But they would all say, you know, from day one, this wasn't feeding me. It wasn't feeding the me. It wasn't feeding the interior me. And so they, they fed that instead in college life with all the things we feed ourselves with in college life. You know, um, they managed to live the life of distractedness and then do the busy thing. But they didn't have a framework where anybody would sit down with them and say, what's it really about? What are you really looking for? What are the things that will integrate those things? So those two personalities, you know, your own and the kind of the opposite. My answer to both of those is go back to the universal, go back to the seeking of wisdom and then recognize that there isn't actually a separation between these two parts of our lives. Um, we, 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 we tend to, to like to think that there is. 
but once we separate them, we're actually cutting off the ability of wisdom to, to, to journey from one side to the other. Uh, and without that, we end up in a crisis point down the, no matter which way we're, we're living it, we end up in a crisis point down, down, the, down the road. I really resonated with with a lot of what you said, but especially the, the, the very last part when you talked about the people coming in, well, I was going to say students, the graduated yeah. uh, who come in and say it, talking about how they no longer want to be an architect, having done it for six, seven years at, at vast expense as well. Um, yeah. And I, it kind of what hit me, because J- uh, Jim and I were talking about this just before, was that... Uh, <clears throat> We also wanted to get on a profile in this mini series that we're doing about purpose and, and, and direction and all the rest of it about people who do follow the, their dreams, um, whatever that may be, um, and kind of don't ever listen to. Not, I was going to say naysayers, but it's not even naysayers. I think in all of our lives, we can all resonate with people in our family members who would say, "Oh, you know, Jamie, you're really good at football, but you know, only one percent make it." and you know what you're not a bad mathematician and accountancy you know it's a steady road you get into big firms kpmg you'll be making big yeah bucks. we tend to call them safe sayers not naysayers but safe exactly. sayers safe and, and it comes exactly. out of it comes out of concern and love genuinely you know they want you to be safe of um, course. and what i was wondering was and i can't for the life of me i'm terrible at this there's always i always remember quotes but never who said them uh, i think it may have been from a film but what, what, what the quote, what the idea is that the reason that we love, whether it's footballers or your rock stars, your film stars, isn't necessarily, we think we probably love them just because of what they do on the pitch, for example, right? And maybe how much money they earn. And it's like, oh, but I think that what the film said, I think was like, the reason we love these people actually is because they never gave up on their dream. And that's something that a lot of us at points in our life, we gave into those safe sayers, let's say. Mm. Um, mm. And instead of and instead of chasing that dream all the way, to its end whether it comes true or not we kind of became the accountant we became the architect we became the 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 nurse whatever it may be um and i was wondering in your experience having you know met with so many people what is it that you think kind of why do some why are some people these people who make it to as the rock star as the footballer as or even the restaurateur who always wanted to be a restaurateur doesn't have to be the big lofty um jobs Mm. you know what is it these people who followed their passion when others would say no do the sensible thing go to university do this do that whatever it may be what is it that they have in common that maybe the large majority of us seem unable to uh to resist under that pressure of of society and family and all the rest of it that that sees us eventually kind of give up on on what what it is that we know intrinsically does serve us but maybe doesn't give us the status that our parents might be proud of, or it doesn't, you know, give us the financial security that we're all told is so necessary these days and all the rest of it. I think um, by and large, if there's anything common amongst them, it's, it's that they, they are capable of not just listening to the, the people out there, but they have found a way to listen to their own, their own heart, their own mind, their own soul. And and what tends to happen for for a lot of people is that the ability to actually listen deeply to the voice within themselves, to their 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 interior, you know, their their interior soul, if you want to call it that, um, is that we live a life of such distraction now. From the very beginning of our existence, we're distracted. You know, um, the old the old um, teaching used to be, you know, you're born a meditation master, um, you just got distracted. Um, and and the difficulty with with um, with the level of distraction that we deal with now 
um, is that very quickly people lose the ability to actually reflect on experience. If we lose the ability to reflect on experience, we lose the, the ability to connect to the dream, if you want to call it that, whatever the person's dream is, um, but in a way that's actually active, that, that grants transformation and change. There are, there are so many people out there frustrated because they have the dream. They can tell you what their dream is. You know, you can sit down with them and say, you know, wave a magic wand, what would your life be? But they are confined within themselves to an extent that is is really is really frightening because they can't imagine the path out from what i want to to who i am um and this is one of the things we found with a lot of the young people was that in in such a distracted state the the ability to imagine which is one of the most magical things any human being can do the ability to imagine reality other than it is, to, to situate a goal, to have a picture, to connect to something other than, than it is, to sit down with a blank piece of paper and dream and, and, and put anything down there. Um, this was atrophying in a huge number of the young people. So I think, James, we, we, we spoke about this on the course. You know, we would say to some of the young people, draw, draw, draw me a house. And they would say, well, show me a picture of a house and I'll draw that. And you'd say, no, you've been, in, you've been in lots of houses over your life. Just draw me a house. And a lot of them would look at you and would say, I can't until you show me the picture of the house you want me to draw. Now, that's a fundamental breakdown in what it is to be a human being. Because the thing that distinguishes us from, as far as we know, from every other species is we're the only one that actually tells a narrative story. And if we don't, develop the ability to tell narrative story, we can't actually imagine there's another way to be. So we have a lot of these people who get caught up in, well, I'll just be purposeful. I'll just do the thing. I will be safe. I will, I will work through the safety levels of life. And, oh, life has handed me a prescription. This is what it is to be uh, a successful, you know, 40-year-old or a successful 60-year-old or whatever it might be. I have to have this, this, and this. And in the, in the end, the imagination is being removed from that, from that um, uh, equation. It's just, here's the prescription, work really hard, stay safe, produce this, we will pat you on the back. Um, and, and to some extent, as we said, you know, even the people who love us around us can, can kind of feed into that because they want, you know, they want to see us safe and well and, and, and successful to, in whatever way it is. But what's missing, what's clearly missing from that is we would call it in our tradition, we would call it the prophetic imagination, right? The ability to actually touch the transcendent, the universal, as we call it, the divine in my tradition, that's what we, we, we would name it. And to see in that a call out beyond the self to actually arrive at the full flowering of what it is to be me as an individual, you as an individual, recognizing that me as an individual is equally valuable as to you as an individual fully. There's no, there's no one being better than the other. It's just that the fullness of our human existence, of our human experience, only happens when we can actually imagine that there is the possibility beyond where we are now. And this is seen, you know, particularly in people who go through trauma and all of that. One of the things trauma does is it collapses the imagination. 
there is an inability to imagine beyond where we are. And so we simply repeat the, the trauma cycle or the trauma circle over and over again. Whereas when people actually are invited into stillness and reflection and to, in, in a safe way, um, the imagination begins to expand and begins to move again. And then we begin to get the possibility of being of moving on, on, on a big dream, whatever that might be. So going back to those people you talked about who have actually kind of gotten there or achieved it, or at least are trying. And I, I think most of those people would never say they've achieved it. They would all say they're trying. Um, what you find with them is a commitment to, to creativity, to imagination, to reflection, to some form of spiritual discipline, usually, and also the ability to recognize that from the smallest act to the greatest act towards their dream, you have to have presence, you have to have at attention and attendance to those things. Um, and that involves the necessary other side of spiritual discipline, which is sacrifice. You know, we don't get to where we want to go without giving up all of the other possibilities. And unfortunately, we live in a, in a world today that tells people, no, 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 you don't have to give up anything. You know, keep going. Try everything. Well, that's fine, but that diffuses your energy. You know, the warrior who stands with the sword coming, coming against him is perfectly attentive. You know, that there's the, war, the only thing that exists in the universe is the opponent in that moment. Uh, because if they let anything else in there, they will lose. And the same is true for anyone who is creatively imagining going forward. It, you're not being self-centered. I don't mean egocentric now in this, in this sense, because this is transcending the ego, because the person genuinely believes that what they are doing is for the betterment, not of just of themselves, but of everybody else. Um, but there is a, a, an ability to be present and to reflect to evaluate clearly what will bring me forward and what will hold me back and to let go of, of the, 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 the latter and, and push forward to, to the former. Thanks for that, Brother Richard. There's a, a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, first, first is I'm reminded of a quote that I read where I think it was that we are told that freedom is endless possibility when in fact we are caged by endless possibility. Mm. And... And to, to just to kind of touch back on what you and Seb were talking about there, where uh, what is an external achievement if there has no, as there has been no kind of internal reflection as well, internal work there. Um, and that um, I thought what might be interesting for people or helpful to kind of, who are still a bit kind of unsure or like have this idea about initiation to be something foreign is I, I thought you had a real cool practice in the course where you asked adults to reflect on what was what they considered to be their initiation or if they didn't have a formal mm. one, what was their informal one. And I thought it was really helpful to kind of explore that for myself, but also I work with young people. And I think we've all seen that where if there hasn't been this kind of agreed upon uh, passage for people, young people or people generally, um, we need that so much that we'll just make up fake ones. So, yeah. you know, you know, most people grow up in Ireland. Oh, well, you're a bloke if you start drinking or, you know, you're a bloke if you have sex early or you're a bloke if you start smoking or if you rob the car or mm -hmm. if you get that job, you know, all these things where we need mm -hmm. it so bad. So we, we throw it on things that are kind of what, like false friends, that they're not actually the thing. And I wonder if you could speak a bit more about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, 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 the anthropologists have a lovely name for this. They call them negative rights of initiation. So the positive rights are those that lead us towards genuine integration in adulthood. The negative rights are those that lead us back into kind of an adolescent or keep us locked in, 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 the, in the level that we were at. And one of the principles of initiation, which is really important because it, it, it makes it a societal thing, is that peers cannot initiate peers into a level beyond themselves. Okay, they, we, we can only initiate others into the level we have attained. Um, and that's where real eldership becomes extremely important. And, and it's also extremely rare, you know, to, to have the people who can actually invite us into levels of integration, wisdom, experience that are beyond ourselves. And that might be a good teacher, a good sports coach. It might, you know, it, again, as you said, we don't necessarily have to think of people with painted faces sitting around a fire. You know, that might be where our mind goes to immediately when we start talking about rites of initiation, etc. Um, the wonderful thing that, that the, the, um, the cla that classical understanding gives us is, is a very clear map. But actually, most people will have had some kind of experience in terms of, if you think of, of a, an adult teaching you a skill that you didn't have before the adult taught you that skill, okay? That's, that's ba a very basic experience of initiation. So the, the, the teacher who teaches you, you know, um, how to write, the person who teaches you how to kick a ball properly, the person who teaches you how to cook properly, etc. These are all forms of initiation. What's, what's particularly important for the kind of thing we're talking about, though, is to meet somebody who has arrived at a point in their life where they recognize that um, meaning begets purpose as opposed to purpose begetting meaning. So Western society says that if I get up in the morning and I have a list of things to do, and they're productive in and of themselves, they're, they're ordinary good things. If I get to the end of the day and I've done those things, then in some way I should feel there's meaning in that. But we all know that's not the way it works. You know, we can say, yeah, good job, well done. But in terms of me growing as a human being through that, actually arriving at kind of full flowering of self, it's very rare that purposeful activity alone will do that. And so the classical civilizations, the, the wisdom traditions, the religions have always taught it the other way around. They say, no, go to the universal first, go to meaning, allow, ground yourself in meaning and allow your purpose, your activity to come out of meaning. Kind of like what we were saying to Seb a few minutes ago about you know, hallowing every experience you have with, with, with clear attention. So when we, we arrive at a point where, um, where we have young people who don't have um, good elders or the elders don't have the technology of initiation, what we end up with then is the young people hungry inside for it because it's encoded, I believe, into the bones of every human being, no matter who we are or where we are. They're seeking this, this experience of transcendence, growth, um, change, movement, etc. And so they start doing what you were saying, what you were doing. They, they name other things, difficult things and very often dangerous things um, that, that uh, will give them this experience of, of thinking that because I've gone through a level of excitement or a level of energy, or because I can now say, I have done what you have done, we can now bond together. But that's not, that's not a tribe in the fullest sense of the word. That's tribe, it's tribalism, but it's not, it's not a tribe. When the tribe is a cross-generational experience 
of people who are saying we understand a cosmology of meaning that allows us to recognize the giftedness of every individual here. But also, if you're going to come through our rites of initiation, you will discover that the tribe has responsibilities to you, to mind you, help you, support you into the full flowering of yourself. But you also have responsibilities towards the tribe. Um, and what negative rites of initiation generally do is to try and push you into a situation of saying there is no responsibility, no responsibility at all. Um, it's just about the buzz or the kick or the crack or whatever it might be. Um, and that lasts for a very short period of time before the person ends up seeking something else again. So we've a lot of people out there who are looking for initiation. We have a lot of people out there who are actually initiating people, but don't even know that's what they're doing. You know, um, and so it's only when the reflective capacity and the imaginative capacity comes in and we're actually able to educate the elders that this is what you're doing, guys, by the way. Um, and this is the way to do it safely, deeply and well so that the young person does have an experience of transcendent universalism, of the, the ultimate ground of being, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so they come out of it with the great teaching of the rites of initiation universally is you are necessary. You are part of a whole greater than yourself, that the whole is less without you, that your life is inherently meaningful simply by the fact that you exist. Um, and that the way to, to deepen your awareness of this meaning is to have reflective practice in your life that will allow you to connect beyond yourself to the universal. And similarly, the most important teaching of all, everybody else is on this path as well. We're all equal. So when those learnings go into a young person, you can actually watch the aha moment happen because it now takes the question of identity away from the, di the dictation of either my peers or my needs and wants. So if I am centered on needs and wants as what makes my identity, then I will be constantly just a complex of um, either ego on, on the, at the very top level or desire at the very bottom level. If I begin to recognize that my fundamental identity is simply, you know what, you're a human being, and that means you have meaning in the world. However that unfolds in your story, you have meaning. And you are a conduit of the transcendent and you are someone who actually connects with the universal as well as with the particular. Then that person for the rest of their life, no matter what crisis they go through, will know that the, the, the bedrock of their existence is, is a universal experience of being wanted and being needed, regardless of whether their parents want them or need them. You know, it's not about the circumstances of their coming into the world. It's the fact that they exist. Uh, and so um, there's, a, there's a tremendous freedom granted in that to, to, to people and a tremendous courage and strength granted to them in that. Absolutely. I, I was chatting with Seb before and I remembered something that you said that I thought is perfect for, for this moment where um, when we're forced to reflect on things that may have been quasi initiations um i something very challenging happened in your life and it forced you to shift the perspective to become a different person to be responsible for other people something like that um 
you you almost look at that right you almost go all right i didn't have a formal initiation but that was kind of it and sure. that kind of made yeah. who i am yeah, yeah. and then Seb, Seb made the point that you know he talked about fe- uh, certain figures that he said well that happened to them and that was that was the that was pivotal pivotal to the person that they are now mm. uh, and i remember you said something that was very important where the initiation i'm uh, sorry just to say before this the the problem with that is that it can be dangerous right as in if it's just happening in life and you're at a young age and you're around you know not particularly responsible adults or just other things are happening um that can be really traumatizing and it can shape who you are but it can still be traumatizing and dangerous yeah and i remember you said that there was that, that there was this kind of container where for initiates there are elders that kind of hold a level of safety for them even if they don't think it's guaranteed safe proof but they know it's safe could you talk a little bit about that please yeah and and that's that's back to the classical rites as they as they as as they appear throughout all of the wisdom traditions so there's 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 three things that that are really important the first is family doesn't initiate you into adulthood the elders do okay so again and again we say it and i always the disappointment on people's faces when they hear this, but parents cannot initiate their own children into adulthood, right? Because they will always be their parent. It's it's as simple as that. And that's one of the reasons why generally initiation, uh, when it takes place in 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 even to this day in a, in, a, in a classical initiatory process is usually handed over at least to the generation above the grand above the parents you know it's handed over to the grandparents so at least there is that distance you know i am not the one who brought you into the world i am i am the one who who um uh who is able to 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 sort of um reveal to you a deeper a deeper experience of being human and that's not devaluing the parental relationship in any way but it is saying the parental re- relationship for every human being is so complicated that to then put initiation on top of that as well it's 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 almost impossible so um that's the first thing so so the container will always have the the, the safe elder okay the person who uh, or people who the tribe as a whole, the universal people as a whole, have now said these people are manifestly integrating, you know, life and being and wisdom and all of that kind of stuff. And it doesn't mean they're not fallible human beings. They're not perfect people. They're not saints or anything like that. But they are people in whom we can see this transformation is actually active and they're working on it. So they're safe to be to send the young people with. The second thing that they will do is that Part of the initiatory experience is usually an encounter with mortality of some description. We all know, you know, at least up to early adolescence, unless there's been major death trauma around the young person, most young people, death is very distant, very far away at that stage, hasn't been very, very close. Um, And um, at least where they are concerned, even if it has come close to them with others, they generally unconsciously view themselves as, as invulnerable, you know, immortal at that point. And so one of the key elements of the initiatory process is to remind them, you know, memento mori, you will die. You know, life is is short. Um, there will come a moment where you will have to let go and go back to God or the gods or the universal or the ground or whatever you want to call it. But there comes a moment of shedding this physical existence. Um, and normally that is presented in two ways, through cosmogenic myth. So this is what the this is what happened to the ancestors, um, or through um, uh, through an experience of trial, pain, or fear. Okay, 
some of them classically can be quite extreme, you know. Um, we've got piercing and circumcision and, and bleeding and, and, you know, um, fasting or, 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 you know, taking um, substances that uh, allow them to go out of the body and all of these kind of experiences. But the one thing that, that is true is even though it can feel extremely scary for the young person concerned, and they can actually think, I'm going to die. What you will generally find is that the, the ceremonies as such are actually really, really safe. And they are surrounded by people who know exactly what to do if anything was to go wrong or any kind of a problem was, was to happen. Um, because the wisdom over thousands of years has been gathered to be able to do that. And so one of the, one of the issues around it then is that when we, we come to looking at this for today, for the average person today, is, well, where are they going to find that container? Where are they going to find that process? And we see like, there, there are two movements I would speak about for a moment. Like there, there, there are the, the men's group movements at the moment where men are kind of, you know, let's go off into the mountains, let's go off into nature, let's go off and be around the fire. And, and they might even have structures around the whole, the whole thing. And then there's the, the female um, equivalent, because by and large, these things do tend to, to, um, to separate with regard to, to, uh, to, to gender, at least masculine and feminine anyway. Um, and there's the kind of like, the, say, the red tent movement, for example, or that kind of stuff, the, the, the various women's groups that, that, that are happening. Women tend to learn faster than men. Um, they, 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 they always do and they always have. Um, and, and one of the interesting things, I was talking to one of the founders of the red tent movement some years ago, and she was saying that, that very quickly they understood that the red tent movement did not work unless all three generations were present. So when they began, they were, you know, women, middle-aged women who were, who were feeling called to have this space and create this space for themselves and begin to sort of deepen their, their, their work around themselves. And that's what they were doing. And they had, you know, sometimes they would bring daughters in or younger women in or whatever, and they received whatever they received from it. But there was this constant feeling something was missing. And the lady in question, she was speaking about her group. She said, one of the days I just happened to say to, to um, one, one of the women she was talking about, her, her mother was, was home. She said, would she not come? Would she like to come? And she said, God, I've never even thought of inviting her. And she did. And she said the quality of presence in the place changed completely. Now, the woman did nothing and said nothing. She was just present. But she brought with it the third generation, the third space. And I think if we want a container particularly for those who are creating containers of initiation. Like there is a reason this has worked and this map has worked universally and has reemerged again and again in every culture, in every religion, in every tradition, um, in, in, every, in every people. Um, and if we don't have the elder, the integrated, educated elder present, the container is not safe. Um, now, one of the problems with saying elder is immediately people go to, oh, well, you know, it's somebody over 70 or over 80 or whatever. And, and that's not what eldership is. Uh, one can be an elder in one area of life and not in, not in others, you know. And it's different from expert. An expert is someone who knows things. An elder is someone who has lived the thing um, and isn't trying to say that their way of living it should be your way of living it. What they're saying is the wisdom in my life 
can meet the experiences in your life and allow you to develop your own wisdom. You know? Um, so that's can where I tradition and eldership becomes important. Sorry, so thanks for that. Sorry, can I just come in there? Just one thing I was thinking of when, when you're talking there, um, uh, a lot of people uh, were, you know, um, I just put thinking of myself. So I haven't got, well, my both my grandparents, well, my yeah, died. Well, my grandfather's died when I was very young, and my my grandmother's died when I was, you know, in my teens as well. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people will be in similar situations, mm-hmm. or probably never even met their grandparents ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because we, you know, I know they say it takes a village to raise a, a child, but because that's no longer the, not that's no longer the case, but it's no longer the experience for a lot of people. You know, we kind of solely rely on our families, and if you haven't got the grandparents, you haven't got the grandparents, and that's all there is to it, type thing. Where, in your experience, do people find these elders? You know, because if you haven't got it within your four walls, uh, yeah. and even yeah, and it feels like more and more now, um, maybe the church might have been that for 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 many generations. You know, your priest or, or whoever it may have been. Now that the, for a lot of people, they're kind of falling out of love or relationships with religion, be that Catholic, Hindu, whatever it may be that's another element where that's kind of falling down so where is it someone like myself for example who probably doesn't i can't just call on my on my grandparents to have an evening with them Mm. um i wouldn't class myself even though i'd kind of been brought up catholic through the my italian background i would no longer class myself as as a believer or religious um Mm. so i wouldn't find my i wouldn't find it comfortable even though i'm very much enjoying this conversation with you i wouldn't find it comfortable to kind of walk into my local church or wherever it may be and kind of talk to the priest where would these people find Mm. these elders that we talk about yeah it's it's one of the biggest questions they're an endangered species um by by and large and and like one of the one of the things i would say is First and foremost, you know, to actually engage people you meet in conversation. One of the things that has isolated us from eldership is the fact that we don't talk to each other. You know, the, the, the elder, the greatest elder you could ever meet could be sitting beside you on the bench in the bus um, and, and, and you're focused on your phone. You know, and I speak for myself in that as well. You know, I'm not, I, I do that too. One of the most interesting experiences I had some years ago, I was on a bus um, going from Canterbury to um, London, one of the, the airport buses. And we, we stopped in traffic and I was looking at the window and there was a gentleman, um, a park keeper sweeping up in a kind of a city park. Um, and all of a sudden he looked up, saw a big crowd of pigeons and ran at the pigeons maddeningly as though these were his worst enemy you know ever and the pigeons took off and he kind of laughed to himself and went off it was pure a pure comedic moment and i looked around the bus to kind of smile at all of the other people who had seen this you know the way we smile together when we've seen funny things not one other person had seen it every other person was looking at their phone now before you think i'm the wonderful person my battery had died Okay, so that's why I was I was looking out the window. Um, But what it reminded me of was the fact that the universal is going on all of the time. We are actually being eldered all of the time. But very often we're so cut off into our own self without that reflective capacity. And that that's as simple as, you know, people think the reflective capacity is sitting on a mountain and meditating for months. It's as simple as lifting our eyes up and looking around us, engaging people in conversation, asking people what your story is. 
And then the other thing is, okay, you mightn't be practicing your particular faith, whatever it might be, but at least you can turn around and say, you know, my faith, whatever it is, for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years was conducting these rites of initiation, has extraordinary levels of wisdom and understanding around it. So even if I don't want to necessarily practice or believe, at least examine what they have, you know, at least examine it. Um, when I was teaching in secondary schools, I used to say to the young people, if I meet you in, in 20 years time or 30 years time and you say to me, you know, I'm an atheist or I'm a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Catholic or a communist or, or whatever, I will shake your hand and say, well done, as long as you can tell me why. As long as you can say you arrived at that through a process of whying, you know, of actually really seeking meaning and truth. Because as long as you're seeking truth, I have no issue with you, no matter what you are or say you are or not, because you're, you're on a path to truth. Great. That's fantastic. That's, that's what we're looking for. So there's a sense of semi-eldering the self by exposing ourselves to wisdom and encounter with the, with the other as much as we can. And secondly, then, when we do find good voices that speak to that meaning, whether they've been dead for a thousand years or they're the person we met on the bus, we keep those voices active, you know? And that's about creating reflective space that's outside of the entertainment space that we tend to fill all of our thinking time with. Uh Thank you for that answer. That that does clear up a few things there. And I wondered, I just wanted to make sure we get this question in. Um, I wondered if you've, I'm sure you have come across this critique that I'm about to give. I'm kind of, I'm just interested in what your response would be. Yeah, Jim and I, as we were preparing for this um, this conversation, you know, Jim said that how it's going to be about initiation and he sent forward a load of questions that he wanted to ask. And I, at the time, wasn't very clear on what he meant by initiation, right? Um, and obviously, as Jim and I have shared like a Catholic upbringing, he said, you know, one, an example would be, for example, maybe a confirmation, right? Where you're mm. kind of, you're, you're brought, you do the processes, you do the learnings and stuff. Then there's obviously, but there's a ceremonial procedure, obviously. And then once you've gone through that, you are now kind of deemed, you passed through the door, so to speak. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then it was, it was interesting. I I've grew up in England. Jim grew up in Ireland. So, but we both actually then made the same critique, which was um, that for both of us, we both gone through that process, that exact process. But for both of us, it felt like well, it, was, it was basically homework. We kind of got homework. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I I remember I remember it so vividly for the rest of my days. I remember because I remember one time it kind of transpired. It, transpired for me over the summer period or maybe easter period i can't remember exactly when, but there was a holiday in between and we were supposed to do certain pages every week or whatever and in this holiday i just ran through the book and i did everything there's a page where i had to cut off a piece of my hair cut it off and sell it in and blah blah, blah. and i remember going back into school being like, oh mr nicholas is going to be so proud of me <laughs> and he absolutely chastised me in front of the whole class for going through the whole book right yeah and basically rendering the next term kind of useless never go ahead of the teacher <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah 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 um and, you know and jim said basically the same thing in the sense of he just got sent do this every week blah blah, blah and then you can turn up for yeah. the confirmation do the confirmation and we were now deemed to be these new people basically in the eyes of the church anyway i'm sure you've heard a similar critique oh yeah um and, and yeah. I just wonder kind of what is your response to that? I'd, I'd be really interested. Yeah, in I, I think that. it's a very, very real and authentic critique. Um, and, and it has it has huge content. And it's one of the things that we that we struggle with. Um, 
because the the eldering into the ways of faith um is usually based on family and community okay and the catechetics if you like the actual instruction bit is supposed to be the minimal part of that but what we find in 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 most modern western societies is that if there is um a desire on a family or if they're going through you know um towards confirmation or particularly in Ireland where where it's still connected largely to the school system it it becomes um just what you've said it becomes homework rather than an actual transformative experience and we would like the vast majority of us uh, I'm speaking of the friars now would say it happens at the wrong age as well um you know for most people it's happening around 11 12 whereas really it should be somewhere around 16 to 18 if it's if it's happening at all um the other element around it is that it was a very easy way to do it you know to to move people through this because they were also being eldered in a very homogenous christian society that 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 um that supported um the the experience and it also meant that somebody later in life would be able to unpack the experience they had because they were in a in a safe container but now we're we're as as um ts eliot famously said you know we have the experience but miss the meaning um and so it's about a series of box ticking exercises to be able to process you and say yeah we've stamped you you're confirmed out you go the other side and i mean amongst clergy it's very often um uh, spoken of as as you know the 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 um uh, the, the the goodbye sacrament, you know, once once we confirm them, we never see them again, you know, unless it's for funeral or marriage or something like that. Um, and there is a reason it, it hasn't actually, it has all the steps of initiation. Everything is there ceremonially. But the process of bringing the person on a reflective, transformative journey that allows them to move from adolescence to adulthood, that's not happening. So that's it. that's almost the opposite extreme uh, to to people, which is we have the ceremonial and the symbolic matrix, but we don't have the matrix of of um, of life experience to connect to it properly. And so that's that's where that's uh, speaking out of the faith tradition that I'm in. That's what we're struggling with at the moment, which is how to make sure that okay, we we know we're certain of the ceremonial aspect and the symbolic aspect, uh, sacramental matrix that, that we're in. But how do we ensure that the people actually don't just have it as an experience and miss the meaning, you know? Um, T.S. Eliot, continuing in that, in that meditative poem that he, that he has, says, we, we have to go back to the beginning, you know? We have to go back to the beginning constantly and sort of um, find uh, that, that meaning again by sort of going back over the story. And I think that's one of the one of the things that we that we have to do is to recognize that. And it's one of the reasons why we began this whole warrior journey course was because we recognized that the vast majority of these kids have gone through confirmation in one of the Christian denominations. But like, what was confirmation? Oh, it was a party. Somebody gave me money. We're not really sure. There was photographs. There was good clothes. You know, we had a party. It's all about bouncy castles and, and who got what. Um, and whether or not I'm going to be given the, the latest smartphone before the ceremony or after it, you know, um, which loses all possible ability. Having said that, what is fascinating, being someone who, who brings groups of young people through the confirmation process, 
is that inevitably there are at least two or three who the ceremonial matrix is enough to actually see them come out the other side changed. And, and what's, what's terrible for them is that they don't see that happen in their peers. So they're, they, they're sort of um, differentiated from or, or um, singled out or they, or, they, or they hide it because they don't want to be singled out, you know, in it. So I think, yeah, there's, there's a requirement for change within the traditions as much as there is a, a requirement for change societally, but probably approaching it from, from the opposite direction, you know. Thanks for that, Richard. I just wanted to ask towards the end, coming to, towards the end of the conversation, um, I kind of wanted to explore. So I've come across, you know, so like sometimes I spend time around people who are really concerned with this and they spend a lot of time yeah. uh, trying to explore this meaning and this kind of community. And you, you can almost sense that there's this, this desperation for a sort of initiation you know there are more and more people taking psychedelics there are more and more people looking to you know mayan traditions lakota traditions you know they're they're just they're they just need it right mm. um but i'm also aware of like two things came to mind when you talked about the significance and and um the need for this is that one i think in this we live in such an individualistic kind of egoistic society where we find it hard to almost surrender to impartial a, a teacher an elder yeah yeah and and the other thing was that we look at old people quote unquote old people essentially as just people who take up space and that we just need mm. to put them away so they can stop taking up the space that we like um yeah and i wonder have you have you kind of thought about that or have you kind of explored that a little bit in your head and where do you think we could go with that? Yeah, well, I think um, let, let's start with the teacher thing, first of all. Um, I, I think it is really important to have a very clear discernment about teachers. Um, and when we make, and I, I'm, I'm using this in the societal sense, not in the religious sense of the word. But when we make of a teacher a guru, one of the difficulties, or a master, if you want to call it, call it that, one of the difficulties there is we're surrendering the wrong part of ourselves. If, if we surrender um, will, intellect, you know, independence, um, we're, we're, we're really being kept infantilized. We're going backwards rather than forwards. The, the true teacher, the true elder is someone who initiates you into freedom, you know, into, into being a better version of yourself and never into dependence on them. So I think one of the things for people to watch out for as they seek teachers is any teacher who says, um, you can't do it without me. You have to be, um, you have to, to, to be like me or who keeps them in a subservient, dependent position claiming secret knowledge or secret understandings or whatever that they won't give until the person gets to, you know, to their level or even worse, surrenders a certain amount of money. Um, I would be very, very wary of anybody like that. That's the first thing. The second thing is any kind of a teacher who um, is not, you know, clear that they're, they're a work in progress as well. 
you know, that they're fallible and human and 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 broken in many ways, because every human being is. Um, if we have anybody who claims that they're perfect, you know, we always say in our tradition, there's a reason we only canonize people after they're dead. Um, because that's the only moment, you know, when someone, there is no more change in, in, in that person. So there's always the possibility of falling. I'm, I'm fallen. I'm broken. I have made many, many mistakes, huge mistakes. And I've hurt people and done all of those kind of things along the way. But what I'm trying to do each day is begin again, integrate the wisdom of it and try not to make the same mistakes, right? That's, that's being a human being, try and move on. Um, but so that's, that's the thing about the teacher. If they'd be very careful of, of that. And I'm really wary of anybody who becomes a kind of an industry, you know, it's not just do the teaching, but it's, you know, wear my T-shirts and drink my protein shake and do all of that. Like, that's just dangerous. Um, the second thing is nobody should be holding on to wisdom, um, you know, at, at a price um, or sort of holding holding authority or wisdom, wisdom over people. Um, I think that, so. They're the two things with regard to teacher. The, the second piece you had there that you you asked was was just around that whole um, how we kind of deal with 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 the elderly. Um, and I think one of the one of the most terrible things um, that Western society will eventually, I think, really come to regret, is is the way we have treated the elderly. We have become such a work centered place that the moment what I or anybody else defines as viable work becomes impossible, the person is almost considered ready for the scrap heap. And there's a huge level of anxiety um, around people who are now in their 60s um, around, well, what, what is my life going to be like in that next phase? Despite, including the fact that we're trying to make them work even longer and longer and longer. Um, so the idea of the retirement whereby I then get to be um, a person who's about being rather than doing, who actually we would say moves into the contemplative stage of life fully, you know, where they're integrating being and where they get to teach um, the others. If we continually push them out to the margins and to the edge, then one of the things we're going to discover is we, we will lose wisdom, we will lose story, we will lose the ability to imagine, we will lose the ability to recognize that uh, there is anything beyond us. And we will keep repeating mistakes because we won't have the person to tip us on the shoulder and say, actually, we, we did this before. Um, and we can see that already. You can see it in politics already. We are ramping up now at the moment to almost the same kind of stuff that was going on in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, as society fragments and moves apart and becomes more and more right-wing and more and more divisive and more and more racist and more and more. And we didn't listen to the older people who could have touched us on the shoulder and said, we went down this road before and this is what will happen. You know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's not old old is good and young is bad or anything like that it's about each generation assuming its rightful role so that the young person is meant to go out there and explore and experiment and expand our knowledge but in a safe way and the middle the middle age is supposed to be you know creative and productive 
and producing, but in a way that allows growth in meaning. And the third age is meant to be the place that actually guides the rest from a wisdom point of view. Um, I always go back to one of the earliest uh, Neanderthal burials that was ever found. We mentioned this on the course. Um, is is um, It's an extraordinary story because it was the first time they said, okay, we, we really think we found human culture here. And the reason the anthropologists said they'd found culture was because they found the bones of an elderly person who had been crippled by an injury along the way, but who had been who had died many years after the crippling injury. And so it became obvious to them that the group, the family, the tribe, whatever you want to call them, had cared for this person beyond their usefulness, you know, um, at a time when resources were very were very minimum, when predators were everywhere, when it was a case of surviving day to day. They had obviously kept enough resources for this person to keep them going. And they asked all kinds of questions like, why was this? Why was it? And they said, well, maybe it was because of fear or maybe it was because of, you know, the fear of the gods or maybe it was whatever. What was really interesting was that when that was brought to, to a group of indigenous people to talk about, they said, of course, they looked after them because they had the story. They were the people who could say, you know, this bush grows over there at this time of year or the, the, the flocks come through at this time of year, or the fish are present over here at this time of year, because they had lived through it. And in lives that were probably only about 30 years long, you know, it was, it was incredible to have somebody who would have that amount of information, that amount of wisdom. Um, and this is what we're doing. Our memories are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We're becoming more and more reactive, less and less imaginative. And so you even see the education system removing things like history for example, as a core element of what it is to be educated as a human being. Now you've got to go and choose it and fight to do a bit of history. You've got to go and choose and fight to do a bit of geography. So you're not going to understand the world you're in and you're not going to understand what it is to be a human being. And instead we do the science subjects and the technical subjects, which are all important in and of themselves. But the difficulty is when you're on your deathbed at 80, you're not going to be worried about equations. You're not going to be worried about, you know, what I made or what I didn't make. You're going to be asking yourself before you slip off and go to wherever it is we go or whatever it is we become. I have my answer for it. You have yours. That's fine. But there is going to be a question of looking back and saying, well, did I live a human life? And that's what initiation is about, allowing us to live a fully human life. It's why those subjects are called humanities. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you go back to the famous Churchill quote where they wanted to, you know, take the budgets away from the arts and all the rest of it during the war. And he said, then why aren't we fighting the war? You know, we don't have this. This is what we're fighting for. This is the stuff that actually, you know, answers the big questions. So once philosophy and religion and spirituality go, they're the first level that disappear. The second level then becomes the humanities disappearing. And we're well on the way to being just a worker ant once they all disappear. Yeah, it's quite worrying. And not to say that it's 
not to say that it's our responsibility, but I do feel that more and more people are acknowledging this trend and saying, well, I'm going to do what I can or I'm going to live as human as I can. That's the positive side. That's the absolute positive side. And I think things like this, these conversations, have the conversations, sing the songs, play the music, put put the put the old stories back out there. Let people uh, come together to actually say, you know, we lived very wisely for centuries. We might have had much stuff, but we lived wisely. You know, we lived with wisdom. We had we had this extraordinary inter interweaving, particularly in Ireland. Um, saving your presence, Seb. Sorry, but particularly in in in, in Ireland, there was an extraordinary um, weaving of faith and folk life, and uh, you know, life on the land, and all of those things together in quite a unique way. Um, uh, I suppose we're a peripheral country, and so change tends to happen at the peripheries very slowly. But we have something; it's still there. It's within. It's within grasp. It's within a generation's sniffing. And if we lose it, we lose it. But I think um, we still have enough of it to be able to 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 rebuild. And it's not about doing things the way they were always done, but it's about taking the wisdom forward and in, into 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 what's what's ahead of us. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I have one question if Seb has. Do you have anything else, Seb? No. Last question uh, that we've started asking guests uh, is uh, what lesson is life teaching you right now? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Not to trust technology. No, um, I, I think I think that the basic the basic lesson is is just you will begin again an infinite number of times in your own life. So don't hold off on beginning again. Yeah. Very very often we give ourselves a hard time, right, when we have a setback or when we, we've done something that we thought we were past. But it's... There's, a, there's a lovely story in, in the monastic tradition, the old monastic tradition, um, of... Um, and, and Abba, one of the masters, uh, and the, the novice comes to see him and the novice says, you know, I'm doing all this work, like I'm doing all the meditation, I'm doing all the all the, the, the hard work, the discipline, all of that, like, and, and nothing's happening, like I'm not changing, I'm not transforming, I'm not becoming like what it is you keep telling us we'll become. So the abbess has come for a walk, takes them out walk, they go up onto a big cliff and they look at, out at the, the desert and the sun is setting and he says to the novice, um, in obedience, order the sun not to rise in the morning. And the novice looks at him and says, what do you mean? He says, just order the sun not to rise in the morning. So he calls out, brother sun, in obedience, I tell you, you are not to rise in the morning. And they sit in silence watching the sun set. And just as it gets dark, the abbot turns to him and says, what's going to happen tomorrow morning? And the novice says, well, the sun's going to rise. And the master says, of course, the sun's going to rise. So there's nothing we human beings can do that will prevent the sun from rising. They sit in silence for a few moments. The novice says, so what does that have to do with me? He says, well, if you live your full human life, then inevitably the sun will rise. You will transform. You will change. You will become the image of the Christ. You will become you know, the fullness of, of what it is. And then the novice asks the question we all ask, which is, well, then why am I doing all the work? Like, if it's going to happen inevitably, why am I doing all the work? And the the master says, because you want to be awake to see the sunrise, don't you? So the work 
of life, the work we're talking about is to arrive at the place of making sure that we're living in it now, the transformation now, rather than transforming as we take our last breath and go off and having lost the opportunity of a human life lived with meaning and depth. And I think that's what the initiatory traditions have been trying to teach us for forever. Mm. Well, I don't think there's a better place to possibly uh, stop recording. I think that's the perfect ending to what has been a perfect conversation. Um, so, Richard, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, <clears throat> we'll we'll put all the links for, for the courses. Oh, yeah. Brother Richard has a beautiful book that we'll put the link in the description as well. You're very kind. Thank you. Then you, and then he's got merch as well and protein shakes that you can also start oh, yeah, wearing. Absolutely, <laughs> beard bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll put the links in. We'll put the links in. Um, and uh, you know, Jim's been to one to, to one of the courses, so um, our listeners know that they should. There's one of the hosts they should aspire to be more like. It's definitely Jim over me. So that that will stand you in good stead. Um, well. I really appreciate this. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you once again. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a great, great chat. Great conversation. Thank you. Thanks a million.